From 12 News, this is Newsmakers. Is it baptism by fire for Governor Dan McKee taking over during a global pandemic and having to carve out a budget in just a few weeks' time? Or a blessing ascending to the state's top job as the world could be emerging from a year of restrictions? Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White, joined by my colleague, 12 News Politics Editor Ted Nisi. Our guest this week, with just over two weeks on the job, is Governor Dan McKee. Governor, welcome to the program and congratulations. Thanks, Tim. I want to start with vaccines, of course. It's top of mind for everybody. One of your first moves as governor was prioritizing teachers over people with pre-existing conditions to get the vaccine. And we continue, Governor, to hear from viewers in their 60s, say, with serious health conditions who could not get an appointment, but they see a young, healthy teacher who got it. Do you understand why those people are frustrated? Yeah, there's not enough supply for the demand. But the first thing I did was to get the vaccinations off the vaccine off the shelves. There was about 80,000 doses that were on the shelves, and I said, get them out. So we've been building capacity out right now to, in, in, in advance of when the supply is coming. So as far as the teachers came, that came a few, a few days in, a few weeks in. But I was on the record saying at the moment when it was the right moment, we needed to do that. Look. In our lives, our kids, our grandkids are our most important thing in our lives, right? They're our highest priority. Right now, our kids need to be served. So to do that, vaccinating teachers uh, takes care of our, 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 chi our children. So that, that, that's why that's, that's there. We need to get our schools open, uh, and we will get them open before the end but of the school But in that moment, year. Governor, you could have uh, made teachers eligible and people with pre-existing conditions and moved the 14,000 doses that you got from nursing homes into that pool so everybody could sign up. But you made the choice just to target teachers. Yeah, so the, the education is a, big, is a very important factor. And getting the kids back in physically, mentally, they need the help. Uh, so that we did that. The people who had the pre-existing conditions, uh, you know, what we're saying, look, we got them in the mix now. Uh, uh, the, the amount of vaccines going to increase this is what I've been saying all along. Build the capacity. We're going to be up to over 100,000 doses a week and headed to 150,000 doses we can get into people's arms. We'll be sent we're sending a letter to the White House today uh, to make sure that we're getting, getting those, uh, you know, the, the, the supply. And right now what we need to do is have the discipline that we've had to keep ourselves safe, regardless of who you are. The discipline. And then when we do that, that that supply is going to increase. What, and when but, it does, we're going to But last be... Friday, when there were 1,600 doses coming online, you opened up eligibility to 160,000 people. That math obviously does not add up. Did you do that because you were facing the criticism that you got for making that decision with teachers? No, absolutely not. And I, and I, and I would say, and I've answered this question uh, on this, uh, on, at this channel, that look, we could have done better, thought better about that rollout, but that was a snapshot of about two hours of time, right? We have people that uh, even yesterday were objecting to that, asking the same question. That actually went online yesterday, and they got, they got an appointment to, to, you know, to have a shot uh, in a week or so. But we're so, still hearing from viewers, Governor. That's not everybody. Well, you're going to continue to hear from everybody because the, the, the demand is significantly higher than the supply. We know that. What we're doing is we're building out the ability to put shots in the arm. That was something, that was the first thing we did, right? The teachers weren't the first thing we did. We, the first thing we did was getting municipalities involved, making sure that they were up and ready to, to put shots in the arms. As far as building out state sites, that's, that's happening right now. That wasn't happening before, you know, I was incoming governor. 
And, uh, and, and we've got the capacity up. That's the main thing to understand. The vaccines are coming. President Biden has said that he expects that every, every person uh, in, the, in the United States should be able to get, be, have one shot by the end of May. Every adult. Every adult. Every, every, every eligible person that you adult. But you so, don't. But you don't think you'll, the state will make that deadline, May 1st? His, his goal was to have everybody have one shot in the arm by the end of May. And we, we, if they supply us with the supply, we will do that. And that, that's, that's the most important thing that I want people to know, is that we built out the capacity in a way in advance of the supply. And yes, people who are frustrated out there, we get it. It took us, three, Sue and I, my wife Sue and I, about three or four times when we became age eligible to get an actual appointment. What I would say is to continue to um, you know, try to get the appointments, and then when you get them, get the shot in the arm. And when we get the vaccine, this capacity is going to take care of itself. You're going to, it's going to be, at some point in time, Tim, we're going to have more vaccine than we have arms that are willing to have the shots put in the arms. That's well, our biggest what issue do you right say, now Governor, What do you say to the criticism, the perception among some people that a big reason why you prioritize the teachers was to try to ingratiate yourself with the teachers unions ahead of next year's election. You've had a fraught relationship yeah. with them and you were with them at the announcement. What do you say to that? Yeah, so that's wrong. I mean, I just answered the question. In our lives, our grandkids and our children are our highest priority. And right now, they need to get back into school. There's really serious issues, both you know, in terms of their education, uh, you know, mental health, as well as physical health. That's a priority that I think that Rhode Island is understanding. So now that the year. teachers are getting vaccinated, are you going to go back to five days a week? What's the payoff uh, from where we are now with how often schools are open? Do you, do you expect them to, within weeks to be fully, fully open? So we don't have a crystal ball on everything there, right? But, but I, I have been saying, not only are we going to get more vaccines, but we're also going to be in a position, the President of the United States said he wants people back in school you know, before this school year ends, right? So we, we're, we're taking him on his word on that. Yesterday, CDC has indicated that they're going to take the distancing from six feet to three feet in the, in the classrooms to accommodate that. So we're, we're in a position where we are going to, um, we, at the end of this weekend, I think we'll be almost at 80% on our child care, our educators, and related staff. Right, so we're going to be in a position after the spring break uh, to do just what you just said. We, we want to salvage as much of this year as we possibly can. And that's not only important to the families and the children, but it's important to our economy. How many people are strapped home taking care of a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old uh, you know, that aren't able to go to work right now? That's going to free it up. And as we move into this uh, flexibility that we're putting in our businesses, we're going to start opening our businesses. So. That it's, all, it's all interrelated, but yes, the answer is yes. We really expect that we're going to have a, lot, a great deal more students in the classrooms uh, towards the tail end of April and May and June, which is critical in terms of the conversations that I've had with union leaders about why it's so critical. It's critical because we need to assess what learning loss has happened over the last 10, 12 months. One, uh, one other question. This was fr came from a viewer last night um, who heard you at the briefing talk about April 19th to open up to everybody 16 and older. And the viewer was a little alarmed. He asked, does this mean that those of us in the 50 to 59-year-old group won't get our own window, but we'll get lumped in with the 16-plus everybody group? So those discussions are going on right now. I think it was indicated that we'll have a portal where people can kind of, uh, you know, reserve spots, you know, in terms of getting back, and then we'll we'll make those decisions shortly, and we'll make those, um, you know, public. It would seem to me as the best thing to do is to continue to give priority over the age and and the people who actually need the vaccine, and I would think that that would most likely be the 
the case. Um, I have a few more questions on the vaccine I might get back to, but I do want to shift gears real quick uh, to charter schools. You told Ed Fitzpatrick from the Boston Globe that the idea charter schools siphon money away from public schools is, quote, a big lie. That was your word, uh, your phrase. The governor, uh, governor, isn't it true that when a student leaves a public school, the money follows them, yet the school's overhead costs don't go down? There's still the bus routes. They still have to heat the buildings. Teach, the same teachers are still there. So there's less money, but the same costs, correct? So the theory that you're saying is, is, is making the sale, right? But I'll tell you the reality, right? The reality, when I was a mayor of Cumberland, I had two failed elementary schools when I started this work. I had a middle school that was in real trouble and a high, high school that was in total repair, disrepair. When we started to open up both my uh, municipal education department and the mayoral academies, those schools got better, not worse. So did they get worse? No, they got better. Did they ever run a deficit? No, they didn't run a deficit. This is, these, this is the reality. But Cumberland has a very this, low per-pupil cost compared to other communities. Which makes it even more difficult to, if, if, you're, if you're, what you're saying is true, or what you're being told, you know, that, then it would make it more difficult to manage the finances of a, of a school budget, right? Because they have less resources. They didn't run deficits. The schools got it, it considerably better, and we didn't um, spike taxes uh, across the property owners in the, in the town, which as also which has been pushed in. There's other lies that are going out there. We got we got reps uh, saying that uh, that. Uh, so again, you're, super, you're you're calling the the that the money following the student that's a lie. I just no, the clear. money does follow the student because okay. it's public money that's right. going into a public school. What I'm saying, the lie is the lie is no, it didn't bankrupt. Uh, schools that are uh, that in Cumberland. It didn't reduce the outcomes. In fact, it increased the outcomes. We had more, um, you know, we had more excellence in our Cumberland schools after the Mayoral Academy opened up than, than prior to. And also, what's one of the other fear factors is, and somehow that because, because it's going to drain money, which is, uh, no, the money follows the child, you're actually educating the child. Uh, that you're going to spike local property taxes. None of that happened in the town of Cumberland. But None it, of that. It might have worked in Cumberland. It, do you acknowledge it might not work in other communities that have a different CBA or, the or same a different? Thing, the same thing happened in in, in, the, in the sending districts to the mayoral academy. Lincoln, uh, Central Falls, Pawtucket. They didn't run deficits. Go back. They didn't run deficits. In Woonsocket, they're not running deficits. They're stressed, but they've always been stressed. So there's ways that, especially with the money that's coming in federally right now, what we want to do is be smart about helping all our schools, right? Because every school matters. I want to ask, what were you going to say about a rep, a comment you were concerned about you heard? Yeah, that, that, that one, of the, one of the superintendents in a, in, a, in a mayoral academy is getting paid like $400,000 a year, $500,000 a year. That's not true. You're sure that's not true? I don't know. I just, you're, you're positive that's I not the case? I chaired the board and I signed the agreement. It's not true. And so these things that are out there are not true. And what I did say, and which is true, that legislation is not a plan to improve our schools. This is the moratorium bill that the Senate's pushing through? The moratorium that's there and other, other uh, discussions Would that are going on Would you veto that, Bill, if it came to your desk? Would I veto it? Yeah. Well, right now, I, I don't think it's a, a strong enough bill to actually pass out of the House. So we're going to do everything we can. If it to passed it. out of the House, would you veto it? Yeah, I would. Okay. Yes. Um, I have a budget question for you, Governor. Uh, obviously, you had 
absolutely you had limited time to put this budget together to do the transition. <laughs> but um, as you know, Congress has exempted PPP loans and expenses paid for with PPP loans. Uh, forgiven, I should say, is what's been exempted from taxation. By default, the state would do the same, but your budget proposal would change that and levy over $60 million in taxes on the PPP loan recipients. And I'll be honest, I was surprised because you talked so much in the past year about needing to help small businesses, looking out for small businesses. They're under a lot of strain. Why would you, when you had to figure out how to balance the budget, make a choice that will impose a burden on, the, on businesses that got these PPP loans? First of all, we exempted the first $150,000, so we gave $70, $70 million of, of tax relief to the small businesses. And then as far as the other, if you made money, you pay taxes. If you didn't make money, you're not going to pay taxes on, 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 the, on over $150 million. And we also provided a letter to the General Assembly stating that if this was, remember, the budget was presented by March 11th, which was agreed to before I got into office, right? It was a pretty short time frame to put a good budget in. And, and that budget, I can manage that budget. We can manage that budget. So we actually put a letter in that said, look, if the stimulus money comes in, it can offset some of that, give more of that relief. We, I would, re we would recommend using the stimulus money. Look, let's it. talk about this relief bill, because Rhode Island, Senator Reed's office thinks Rhode Island at the state level is going to get $1.1 billion. That's just the state share of the state and local pot. There's all sorts of other money in there, but just limiting to that, Governor Raimondo last year generally allocated the $1.25 billion from the CARES Act kind of on her own, and the Assembly just ended up greenlighting it. Do you plan to allocate that money similarly uh, you know, on your own, and here's how we're spending it, or are you going to present a plan for spending that $1.1 billion to the legislature and kind of do it through the normal budget process? So we're going to collaborate with the General Assembly. I was on the record last year saying that should have been happening then. So it'll happen in some form now, which we're working our way through that. Any idea how soon you might put forward some ideas on what to do with it? Yeah, one of the meetings I had to, going to have today is about the stimulus and how, how to outline that. I would think by mid-April we'll have a plan on those. It's a lot of money, and we've got to make sure we use it wisely. Uh, and I think that the state uh, can get a lot stronger f uh, financially, as municipalities can, as a result of those dollars. So you want, we want to make sure you use it wisely. You don't want to be spending those dollars and then find out that you have to spend them again because you've got to repeat the expense. You can't like layer it into the budget on ongoing expenses. So you've got to figure out a way to do this well. And also, the dollars that, were, that, are, that have been allocated, that's a multi-year strategy. You know? And that's one of the things that we're putting together right now is a two-year strategy on reopening schools. So we've got to make sure that we're really thinking out in the distance to get full advantage of those dollars. It is a lot of money, and it's a once-in-a-lifetime type of opportunity that Rhode Island will hopefully will be able to take advantage of. We're going to take a break on the program. Like I said, he's only been on the job for just over two weeks. What has surprised Governor Dan McKee most? Stay with us. You're watching Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White, along with 12 News Politics Editor Ted Nisi. Our guest this week is Governor Dan McKee. Uh, governor, when you were Lieutenant Governor, uh, you were actively involved with issues before the Public Utilities Commission and, and the regulation of utilities. We found out this week National Grid uh, is, is being sold to, or at least the uh, gas and power here, to Pennsylvania-based PPL. Do you have a sense if that's good or bad for Rhode Island ratepayers? I think there might be an opportunity there, right? Because it's a it's a it's a it's a United States-based company, right? That's my understanding. National Grid is that, National that, Grid's in England. Yep. A lot of the a lot of the decision making had to flow from abroad and out of the country. So, 
And you know that I have been very active there. We, we in, actually included a, in, in, a, in the uh, our budget that uh, um, bill that would require uh, utilities to file a, a plan, and then if they deviated from that plan and we had outages, that they would be paying penalties, like, just like in the Massachusetts and, and New York. So we're going to continue working on that, uh, and I would expect to have um, really strong conversations over the next year because the, there's a, a lot of uh, discussions that have to happen before there's a sign-off on that happening. So we're going to inject ourselves in many ways to help uh, protect the ratepayers in that discussion. Let me ask you about an another different world that is also heavily regulated, and that's healthcare. Um, two different topics I want to hit you on with that. First, I want to ask you about Blue Cross Blue Shield got a lot of pushback this week after we reported they're going to start charging their members out-of-pocket costs for COVID-19 treatment after March 31st. Um, your health insurance commissioner, Patrick Teague, told us yesterday you and he are both concerned about that and you're reviewing your options. Do, do, could you see some sort of policy or regulation being put in to, to block that from going into effect March 31st? Or is it more you just hope they'll know you're yeah. upset and they'll change their plan? Well, I think that Blue Cross has been a great partner during all this, right? Uh, we want to make sure that people understand that the shots, are not, there's not going to be any cost on the shots regardless of what the health insurance does. Mm -hmm. But I would think as long as there's an emergency uh, executive order in place uh, that... Uh, we, that, that's going to um, dictate how everybody behaves, right? So I would think that we'll be in conversations to make sure that um, we're protecting the, um, the insured, you know, the men and women and the families that are insured by Blue Cross to make sure that we'll do everything we can to make sure that uh, those costs are covered until we, at least we get out of this um, at least we got out of this emergency executive order. Other side of the healthcare system, the hospitals. Um, right around the time you were taking office, Lifespan, Care New England, and Brown began this big push. They want to merge into one large health system. And you hear, you hear very strong opinions. People will say this could be great, academic health system, good for Rhode Island year. People say this is going to be so huge, it will be uncontrollable. What do you think uh, right now? Well, I think I'm 17 days in, <laughs> and there's, a non there's major, major issues, and we're We've been in contact with uh, hospital um, CEOs, both on the, who are involved in the merger and not involved in the merger, and that discussion needs to continue going on to make sure that, uh, as you just said, that there's still a level of, of fairness and that everybody can uh, you know, provide health care regardless of what hospital they're in. I think that I, I like the idea that this is more of an all-in Rhode Island uh, scenario as opposed to a few years back. You know, we, we, we were hearing that things were going to go to Yale, or things were going to go to Harvard, we're going to be out of Massachusetts, we were recruiting doctors up to hospitals up in Boston. I think this is more of an all-in Rhode Island strategy, and I think that that's good. And then bringing Brown into the mix, I think that is healthy as well. So I think there's so many components about this that, are, that uh, could bring in really strong economic and health coverage uh, for people in uh, economic opportunity. So I think it's really worth looking at, and I, I would expect that something's going to happen, but does that mean that they, they need to divest one of the hospitals to kind of make a, more of a level playing field? Those are all discussions that are, that are going to happen over the next several months, and we're going to be very involved in those discussions. Governor, many advocates say if you're going to legalize marijuana and allow businesses in the state to profit off it, you need to expunge, expunge the records of people who have been charged with marijuana offenses. There is no expungement provision in your bill yet. Do you support expungement 
of marijuana crimes if that passes? Yes, and we're going to support Rep. Williams. I think Rep. Williams has a bill there. We've been in conversation whether I should have put it in the budget or support her bill. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a piece of it. That's one of the, that's one of the equity pieces in, this, in the marijuana, right, that uh, disproportionately you have people of color that have been charged. On would, do you know, would that be an automatic expungement or would they have to apply? I don't know. I, I, I can't answer that. Okay. You know, I, but I, I mean, either way is fine with me. I, I, I think that they just need a path uh, towards that. If, in fact, it's no longer a crime today and it was then, uh, that, should be, uh, that shouldn't be part of that record. Real quick on this topic, I, you know, it, it's not lost on me that in 2018 you were in the studio. Yes. You were in a debate with Aaron Regenberg uh, for lieutenant governor, uh, and you said you were against. Yeah, legalizing That was marijuana. the rapid-fire questions. It I sure was. Recall, right? uh, and that wasn't that long ago. Seared into yeah. your memory. Right, right. right. Yes. <laughs> what changed? I think, the, I think the landscape had changed. You've got Massachusetts moving ahead. We certainly can learn from then. I think we're reflecting in the bill that we, that we proposed, uh, you know, strong regulation, really good oversight, making sure that some of the dollars go into some of the uh, areas that have to do with health and, and addiction issues, giving opportunity uh, to uh, minority business owners, and, and we've, we prioritize them. So 20% of, the, of, the, of the, uh, you know, the, the applications that go in are we approve through a minority business. So there's economic opportunity there, and as long as, we're, as, long as we are um, being competitive with our neighbors, I think that's, that's certainly a, a piece. But I think that what you just talked about, the, uh, the, the fact that there is, there is a need to expunge records, there is a need to make sure that we're not um, penalizing people long-term, and that's happening. So I think that there's many factors, uh, but I think it's a, it's a sign of the times. And so if it, it's, there's a lot of decisions that you're going to make that are not 100% one way or the other. There's gray areas. But eventually, once you make your decision, now you make the best, best you can out of it. I think that that's the case in this. And I think that we have put a very good bill together, protecting the, the um, making it an entrepreneurial. Last year it was more Let's have a state New Hampshire plan, right, which is going to be more state-held. State we got 85 or so uh, uh, cultivators that have invested dollars uh, in their businesses, so we want to make sure that they have an opportunity to uh, you know, make it if they can. And so the entrepreneurship is a big piece of what we put forward, and it's a big change what, you know, what the Governor Raimondo had put forward. You just released a list of the 10 finalists to yes. be the new lieutenant governor, and you've said you're going to choose probably the next month or so uh, who that'll be, and it'll go to the Senate. One observer pointed out to me, I hadn't realized this, uh, at least four of the 10 finalists are pro-life Democrats, and right now there are no pro-life Democrats in statewide or federal office in Rhode Island. You yourself are pro-choice and have been. I'm curious, would you be comfortable appointing a pro-life Democrat as lieutenant governor? I think it was good for the state. I would, um, and, and that will determine that. I haven't made the mind up what we're going to do there. I think the process has been awkward as, as this whole transition has been, and, but at the same point, th this has never been done before. Well, I'll tell you, the benefit that we've got out of it is that we've interviewed many, many people that want to make Rhode Island good, a great place to live. Some of them may be local candidates someday, right, because they've expressed this. Many of them may be on serving on boards. Uh, so the process, even as, as uh, cumbersome as it been, and, 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 and certainly in the, in the media, making sure that we're trying to get all the information as we can as we're, we're you know, putting a budget in by March 11th and dealing with the hospitals and dealing with the, uh, the schools and all that type of thing, I think there's going to be a big benefit in terms of the process. And we'll, we'll select, I'll select somebody that is going to be able to work with me and then really show why a, a lieutenant governor governor should be elected together as a team. Quick follow-up on that. Um, that would require a constitutional amendment. Are you going to put forward a constitutional amendment to put that on the ballot in 2022? 
I, I, I was ready to do it in 2020. So I think that it, sh it should go forward. And if, if you ever had a reason to know that you need to run a, a lieutenant governor and a governor together as a, as a team in a, in a campaign and then manage together, I think that we just experienced So that. you're going to put, you're going to put it in, you, it has to go in the legislature and then it will go on the ballot next year. If, if I, if I may, if, if, if we get sponsors in the, in the General Assembly to put on the ballot, I would definitely would do that. It should be done. So as you've said a few times on the show, you're only 17 days in as we talk on this Friday. What has surprised you most about the job? Well, I think that it's, um, it's not the challenge because I've gone through five transitions before. Um, it's, it's, I think it's the, uh, it's the media attention, right? I think that's an adjustment that needs to be made, and we need to make sure we do a good job communicating uh, with the media. And uh, I did that as a mayor, and I think that's a little learning curve. One of the things is that... You didn't think you'd be more under the spotlight as governor <laughs> of the state of Rhode Island? No, I did. I did, but I'm, you, you asked in terms of the surprise and the, and, yeah. the, and, the, and the challenge. I think that we need to make sure that we're doing a good job there. And, uh, you know, I think that we've done fairly well, but I think we can do better. I uh, had a different version of a reflective question. I looked last night. Rhode Island has had 13 governors in your lifetime, Governor McKee. And I'm wondering, which of those 13 do you most admire? Who's your role model as you step into this job? We have one minute left. We have one minute left? Yeah. yeah you can't name all 13. That's a, that's a cop-out. <laughs> well, I think that the most recent is, uh, you know, I, I, Governor Garrett, he certainly have had conversations when he was living in, in, uh, in Governor Allman. I'm bringing his nephew on on my staff. Right. I, must, yeah, I, yeah. I must have liked uh, him as well. So, uh, yeah, those two stand out as being pretty, pretty strong leaders, and I would like to be able to emulate their, you know, the way they, they did their operations. Bipartisan uh, pairing. Too. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, 30 seconds left. A lot of people might not know you're a big basketball fan. NCAA tournament starts today. Who do you like? So the long shot is, uh, you know, is, is UConn. We're very happy they're back in the Big East. Uh, and uh, last year... Um, we had to cancel our trip to, to watch the Big East and do the, uh, go to the tournament, the, the uh, A-10 tournament. Ten seconds. Who do you like? So I'm going to go with UConn. All right, UConn. There it is. Yes. Governor Dan McKee. Tell Governor uh, Lamont that you, uh, you stuck back. I like that. I mean, Gonzaga. We'll see you next week on Newsmakers. <laughs> Thanks, Governor.